Welcome to such an exciting episode of Solace in the City. I seriously cannot believe I record with with Victoria. She is such a boss, literally spearheading and blazing the trail um, for mental health advocates everywhere. And yeah, just such an inspiration and really makes me wish I were cool enough to do a TED Talk. Um, But yeah, I think you guys will all like really enjoy this episode and... I'm sure, you know, a lot of you already know of Victoria, so you can definitely sense my fangirling in the entire time. But on a separate note, I've been thinking a lot about Solace in the City and its beginnings because it's going to be a year on the 28th um, since the first episode. So we're going on our one-year anniversary, which is crazy, but... Yeah, I've been just like thinking about the origins and reflecting on where I was this time last year. And then when I was scrolling through my Finsta, yes, Finsta, I did say those words. I saw a post from a year ago today, which I don't know why I posted this reflection, but it's just crazy to read something that was at a point of your life that was just so different. So, um, and that's this, you know, in the same vein, I wanted to read, read it to you guys because yeah, it's personal. It's from my fake Instagram account, but I mean, I'm pretty personal on this podcast, so I don't really feel like I'm going like, you know, doing something crazy here. So here we go. PSA, super long and corny caption ahead. If you don't like reading cheesy shit, then keep scrolling or unfollow me. So as you may have noticed, my posts in the past two plus years have been a mix of self-deprecating memes and pics of me crying and complaining about my life. Not saying that this isn't okay to do. I stand by my pity party as I try to keep my finsta as, as authentic as possible. This has probably lost me followers along the way, those who purely wanted to see videos of me being dr- a drunk mess and oh my god I can't say that <laughs> and yeah I'm just gonna skip that to those people I would like to say I too like those videos but kindly fuck off the truth is I've been really fucking sad these past two years my mental health has never been stable to begin with and losing friend after friend to incurable diseases and suicide has been beyond overwhelming. My grief led me on a path to self-destruction and it has been unbearably hard to change my route. But here's the good part. These past two months have been the best I can remember in so fucking long. I honestly can't remember having such a genuine grin on my face since my 21st birthday. I have so many people to thank for helping me get here and some meds lol. (laughs) But I also am pretty damn proud of myself. I'm going to make 24 my bitch, and I'm so excited to see what lies ahead. I love you all, and as always, please message me if you want someone to commiserate with or vent to. I'm your friend, and I'll always listen. So, wow. Damn, that was deep. Sorry, I didn't, I honestly have not read that before just now. So, 
didn't didn't know it was going to be like that intense but it's weird reflecting on that because I do remember like that time of my life just suddenly being a little bit better than it had been and so I mean you know the cards fell into place and I started podcast and here I am now so I don't know why I felt like sharing that I just thought it'd be nice to reflect on and you know be another reminder that if you're having a bad time or a bad year, a bad few months, just know, who knows, maybe like you're going to write that down and like look back in a year and just be so proud of like how you got out of it. So hope it's a little bit of inspiration. But anyways, without further ado, here is Victoria. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am freaking out because I'm so excited to be here with Victoria Garrick, who is a public speaker and the host of the Real Pod podcast and just so many more things. But that's what I have written down as your intro. So, Victoria, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. So, uh, why don't you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself, like where are you from, how old are you, where did you grow up, what's your story? I am 23. I'm from Northern California and I, <laughs> I don't know, I just had a pesto chicken sandwich for lunch. Nice. <laughs> I'm always so bad with the tell me about yourself questions because... I, you know, it's like, where do you even start? But so many things. Um, let's see. I played volleyball growing up. I played volleyball in college. Um, and yeah, I mean, anything you want to know, I'm happy to answer. Awesome. So obviously, I mean, I know you because of the volleyball story and how it connects to mental health and just athletics in general. But um, going back in time, like, were you always playing volleyball? Was it always your sport? Um, I guess when did you start? I feel like it's such a, it's funny because I mean, volleyball was never a sport that was offered on the East coast, like where I went to middle school and then uh, I went to high school in Greece and they, they did offer it. Cause like, I guess we were good at it. And, uh, I was like, Oh, I'll try out. And I'm like five, one <laughs> did not even make JV. Like, <laughs> They were like, yeah, what are you thinking? Are you Greek? Yeah. Okay, me too. Wait. I'm 50%. Me too. No way. My mom's maiden name is Panagakis. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, my last name's Skirletis, which is, I guess, I mean, it's not as Greek Greek as it could be. But yeah, I used to live in Athens for a year. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's incredible. I visited, my family took me once when I was young um which I'm like could you have waited to take me um when I was able to actually understand what's going on but I have the pictures in front of the Parthenon to to try to remember but that's really cool what a small world love the Greeks Greeks. Christos Onesti um but yeah but yes about volleyball sorry you just asked about volleyball um I started playing volleyball when I was 14 so I grew up playing a lot of sports, but volleyball didn't seriously kind of take over for me until my freshman year of high school is when I wasn't able to play soccer, or basketball or track anymore. You know, you get more serious being on those high school teams and with the high school academic load. So that's when it started to become serious for me. And 
did you know like that you wanted to do it as in college like did you know that the d1 athletics was kind of like the direction you wanted to take I definitely always imagined myself continuing to play sports because they've been such a big part of my life um but I don't think I started to have thoughts about division one college volleyball until my sophomore year of high school my brother was a golfer and he golfed at UCLA so in just supporting him and watching his tournaments that's how I started to become familiar with the Pac-12 and learn more about the college level got it so what did because I know it really is like depends on the sport but what did the recruitment process look like for you For me, the recruitment process consisted of lots of emails, lots of calls. Um, Fortunately, as a volleyball player, we have these tournaments um, throughout the country, and there's always coaches there at these national tournaments, depending on what kind of team you are. But if you're on a national level team, um, you go to these events and you just look around and there's Texas, there's USC, there's Stanford, there's Penn State, there's Cal Poly, there's just all the coaches in their fleeces, sweatshirts, hats, walking around scouting. So, um, you know, just hoping that coaches come watch your court, they think you're good, or you email them your schedule and they come watch and um, a relationship develops there. I was someone that was talking to USC and I went on a visit there my sophomore year and you know the coaches had seen me play but it definitely didn't seem like uh oh we gotta sign this girl right now it was more like okay you know we know you we Mm -hmm. think you're good we've seen you keep in touch um and I really wanted to play there so um I was grateful that in the end you know everything worked out and so I know at least from like listening to podcasts you were on for context this dog is late what's what's wrong what is what is wrong with you okay is it a doodle <laughs> yeah he's a burner doodle so cute so cute but so annoying right now i'm trying to record a podcast episode um he's been on way too many podcast episodes now <laughs> but so i yeah i know from like listening to um some podcasts that you recorded or like were interviewed on you were, I guess, I forget what the phrase is, like a walk-on, but like a recruited walk-on or something like yes, that? Yes, a walk-on. So essentially, I did not get a scholarship for playing volleyball. Um, I was actually just about to say most student-athletes, but it's actually not the case. There's a misconception that every athlete in college is on a full-ride scholarship or even has scholarship money. Actually, a huge portion of college athletes don't have that financial support. Um, so there's a traditional walk-on, which is you show up to campus – And you literally knock on the coach's door and say, I used to play in high school. Can I try out for your team? And then there is a recruited walk-on, which is what I was, where you commit prior to graduating high school or getting accepted into the school, but with the condition that the school will not have a scholarship for you. And that was also fairly common with my position, the libero position. Um, Most of liberos in college are not on scholarship. That's such a – I mean, I was – Previs, not an athlete at all. So I feel like I can say this without getting attacked, but I feel like it's like a really unfortunate name to call it because it's like you were recruited. You're kind of getting like the short end of the stick. You're like, you were recruited I mean, to play, but you weren't getting the money. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely. I think when you look at literally what the difference is, of course, you would love to have that financial security for school. But um, like I said, it's it is super common. At least people in the sports world know that. Yeah. So it's not like when you show up to the team and you realize who's on scholarship and who's a walk on. There's like some big difference. At least in my experience, I was treated like every other player, which I was grateful for. Yeah, definitely. And so. When you joined, I know that you were at least, again, from your TED Talk, like playing every single game for the season and ultimately won the NCAA championships your first year. So what was that like? And I guess... Well, we did not win the Natty. I wish we did. We uh, we were number one in the country. No, you're good. We were number one in the country, but we lost... Um, right before the final four, it was, it was a tragic upset. Got it. But still number one in the country is insane and you were such an integral part of the team, I guess. So my first question is how did like your expectation of playing sports in college differ from the reality? And then also what was it like, like being on that high and then Kind of, and then, you know, obviously this podcast about mental health, you're a huge mental health advocate. What happened afterwards that kind of, you know, that changed that um, like moment of euphoria? Well, I think everyone, no matter what it is in life, dreams of getting the thing they want or yeah. being at the top. But the catch is that once you get there, you you hadn't been thinking about what it takes to maintain. Like, what does it take to stay on cloud nine and not fall off is always how I like to put it. And I think I had these expectations of I'm going to be on the best team. I'm going to be a great volleyball player. And, you know, we are going to be on TV and play these teams. And it's going to be so glamorous and so exciting and thrilling. And it was those things, but it also had a lot of requirements and there was a lot of pressure going on behind the scenes that I don't think I was prepared for, nor was I even thinking about as I was, you know, taking the steps to be there. And so, you know, that was difficult for me. I felt the most stress and pressure I had ever experienced in my life up until that point. And I just didn't know how to properly handle all of that as a 18 year old freshman I had so many changes as a college student and now I was having to figure out how to cope and manage this insane amount of stress and pressure and of course not having guidance not feeling prepared I didn't know how to handle it and that's what led me to developing performance anxiety and depression yeah I mean I just think about like how stressful college is in general and then couple that with you know I don't even know, like four plus hours of practice a day and conditioning. And like, it's insane that, you know, 18 year olds are required to do that and also be held to the same standard of every other student in terms of academics, in terms of like having a social life. It's just crazy. And I know that that's something that you are such a big advocate for about like really speaking up for athletes who maybe didn't have the chance to take a step back and be like whoa like what what are we being held to definitely and I think a big thing I hope to do is 
spread awareness for the demands of the lifestyle because I don't think it's definitely a lot and I definitely think in a perfect world we wouldn't have to put that much of a commitment on the student athletes however if it's gonna be that way that's fine but let's provide them with the resources Mm -hmm. the support let's not shame them for seeking help Um, there's so many ways we can help make the experience easier on those student athletes yeah Exactly. And also just bringing to light the fact and like addressing it that this will be challenging both physically and mentally, I think is like a huge part of it. Or I imagine not an athlete again. (laughs) A thousand percent. So you mentioned that you started having battles with anxiety and depression. I guess when did that start manifesting? And also when it, you know, when you did start having that, like, did you know what you were going through like did you know it was anxiety or do you think it was just like you know stress of a student I definitely was not aware of what was happening I think I knew of anxiety and I kind of I definitely knew of anxiety but I mean I think I thought of social anxiety more I thought of someone who doesn't have confidence talking to people or someone who is insecure and I was just always very outgoing and talkative so I never thought about myself as someone who could have anxiety Um, but performance anxiety was specific for me in the sense of getting out on the court and playing volleyball, touching the ball, literally needing to perform and do what I'm trained to do and not having any confidence that I could get that done. And, you know, the symptoms for me were like, my hands would shake. Um, I would just feel my eyes always watery. Uh, you know, the pounding in my chest, my heart beating fast, not able to go to sleep at night. And I just thought those things were, me not being me not being strong enough or me not being able to uh, handle it the way everyone else does Mm -hmm. and I think that athlete mindset negatively affected me because I tried to talk myself out of my mental health issues like oh you should tough this out or you sleep this off and you know you can't sleep off invisible injuries just because they're invisible yeah no that's so well said and I guess when did you finally address it like and how, like, how did you kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and be like, oh, this is something that just chemically, you know, imbalanced. It's not me just not being strong enough. I don't think I realized that until the depression hit. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> that was definitely the like, whoa, I can't talk my way out of this one or watch a motivational video. This is dark. Um, and so that was my sophomore year of college. And I was just a completely different person. And it was weird because a part of me was aware of this. Like looking back, there was the me that was hurting and drained and depressed and and down and then there was this part of me that was aware that I was different than I used to be but I couldn't figure out how to to fix it um and so I think that's when I realized this is something that's beyond my own ability to fix and that's kind of when I started exploring seeking help talking to a therapist um and eventually I did that I started seeing a therapist Um, I started to get on antidepressants, which was difficult for me too. I'm not even, I don't even take Advil. I like think everything's placebo. I don't even drink coffee. I'm like, I'm high on my own energy. So for me to take an antidepressant was definitely difficult, but you know, I, I ended up realizing like, like you said, I have a chemical imbalance. It's not going to fix itself the same way if you 
cut your leg open. You need stitches. You can't just hope that gets better. And so I realized that this medicine was was doing the same kind of thing to help this injury for me. And, you know, I'm grateful that I did seek help and I did do those things because, you know, it's allowed me to still be here today and advocate for those things. Yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. I think about this all the time. Just and I probably use this phrase all the time. I mean, I know I do, but like how it's like hindsight is just so 2020 because I was very similar. Like I did not want to go on medication both for selfish reasons because I was like, I don't want to get fat because I also had an eating disorder. So like that was also a big red flag for the psychiatrist that um, I don't think she picked up on. But, and also just the same kind of thing of like, what's this really going to do? But it's my new psychiatrist, my my most recent um, psychiatrist when she was, telling me about you know SSRIs just laid it out very um what's the word like drew like the chemical formula or like molecules and all that and it's like listen if you have a headache you take an Advil if you have this like a lack of serotonin um I'm not even really 100% sure that's the right um serotonin's correct you have like an imbalance in your ability to produce serotonin something something serotonin reuptake intake something like that but still when she laid it out like that I was like oh you're right and just it's such a I don't know it just shows how this conversation needs to be normalized even more because if people had been you know if if women and men were taught were, were like given the same ads for you know, like a Zoloft as they were for an Advil when they were growing up, maybe like there wouldn't be such a stigma against taking medication for something that's just so normal. Yeah, no, I agree a thousand percent. There's just so many things we don't know that we have to learn. I mean, even as simple as how did I never hear the words performance anxiety? Yeah. By the time I was 18. And obviously things have changed, which is great. Um, There's so many more people a part of the conversation. And I see so many young athletes now having resources and icons to look at who talk about these things. So that's at least promising is how rapidly the conversation is changing. We still need to equally rapidly change the available resources the accessibility to all people who need mental health services but you know we are making strides yeah which is so awesome to say and I mean you are definitely someone who is like in you know one of the no pun intended players of this like moment of like advocacy and like making real change and I and part of that started with your TED talk speech so I was wondering if you could quickly Obviously, you don't have to like summarize it or too much. But what inspired you to give that speech? Of course, I thought you were going to say, "Would you give a summary?" I'm like, "Let me just give a TED talk right here." Yeah, exactly. Like, um, just I honestly sometimes, yeah, sometimes when I I I put it on or I never I let me clarify, I never watch my own TED talk. But if I ever am like pulling it to send to someone and it like starts playing. I sometimes, depending on where it is in the talk, I remember the words. Um, but then other times I'm like, I'm like, how did I end the talk? I don't even remember. <laughs> so it's funny how things happen yeah. like that. But the inspiration was, it really was simply, I want to 
I knew the TED Talk was going to become a video. That was literally my only thought. Was this going to be a video that lives online? And I was like, if someone Googles depressed athlete, athlete depression, or how do I enjoy my sport? Something along those lines. I hope my video shows up and I hope they know that they're not alone. That was literally the only reason I wanted to give a TED Talk. Um, everything that's come from it, like the public speaking, the platform was not even on my radar, which sounds kind of stupid to say now, like how could you give a TED Talk and not think um, something would come from it? But there's so many TED Talks. There's thousands and thousands of TED Talks that nothing really comes from them um, besides a few thousand people watching them and feeling the impact. And I thought that would be me. Um, so, you know, I'm so grateful for what has allowed me to do that now sometimes I sit back and I think, oh my God, what if I never gave that TED Talk? Because I was actually cut from the interview process. Like halfway through, they said, thanks, but no thanks. We're moving forward with the other round of speaker candidates. And I was like bummed. I was like, darn. But what was I thinking? I was going to get a TED Talk. Like I wasn't that upset. I just thought I shot my shot. Yeah. I'm going to go get dinner now with my roommate. And then that night they said, actually, we do want to see you one more time. So I just think about how it could not have, po how possibly it could not have happened. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's, it's really wild to look back on the whole experience. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Because it, I mean, I don't know why they cut you to begin with because I, I just listened to it this morning again to like refresh it. And you're a, such a good public speaker, like come so naturally and B just, I think, you know, you had the stats and like the surveys of your own and it just was, I imagine I can tell you why I think they cut me. I think they told me this. Uh, it was, it had something to do and I'm not trying to make, this committee look bad at all but it was something to do with there have been a decent amount of mental health TED talks yeah. so like have we heard this before and I don't blame them for having that thought but I personally thought that no one had heard this before because it was athlete mental health and I thought it was so specific and very different um and so kind of going into that final round when I knew I was a last minute thought I tried to explain that narrative of like maybe you've seen a TED talk on depression, anxiety, suicide, mental health, but was it an athlete? Was it an athlete from a division one program? Um, you know, that's a different story. So I think that's why, but I appreciate your kind words about my public speaking and my data. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually, that's actually also interesting. The fact that, because it's funny, I, in my self-promotion for my podcast, like there was a week where I just spent like every single day contacting every news source. Like I called NBC, I called ABC, I called MSNBC just to be like, listen, I have this thing. Like I'm in I interviewed like the governor of New Jersey. So I was like, I just interviewed the governor of New Jersey. Like, you know, and they're like, mm, mental health, like podcast. It's okay. Like everyone has a podcast these days. And I'm like, okay, if everyone has a mental health podcast these days, then why is there still a mental health epidemic? Like, why are suicide rates at an all-time high? Like, obviously, maybe people are talking about it, but nothing's being done. So people need to just keep talking about it. So it's interesting that that was, like, a similar reason. Um, and I get, like, it. it's awesome that you were able to have such a target target uh, pick a target audience that's so affected, but it's also just wild to me that, you know, there are so many, I guess, videos, but, and yet, right. We're still, we're still pushing through. Um, right. But what were some of the initial reactions? Like I imagine that ton of people, ton of athletes 
have had a very similar experience. I've spoken to some athletes who have also had a similar experience. Like what was a, like what were some of the reactions and B, what was that like to get that, you know, hear from other people? It was definitely overwhelming in a good way. Um, the other weird thing about Ted talks is you, f- you, you give your Ted talk, it's recorded and filmed and then it doesn't go live on YouTube for like three or five months later. So you kind of give your TED talk and then you move on with your life. Mm-hmm. And then three months later, you get an email that this link is live and you send it to your friends and family. And then, um, you know, it just started getting more views and I started getting more messages. And I just slowly realized that so many people did relate to the message. And that's something that I knew in my heart. I, I knew people would relate, but I guess I didn't think about how that would actually happen and mm-hmm. so receiving all those messages was just heartwarming um it was exactly what I'd hoped was those people would feel comforted by the video and then it's kind of what led me to continue creating content and building out what I have to this day because I thought well that's just 15 minutes mm-hmm. I have a lot more I can share that hopefully can help you in some way and let me keep sharing it that's so awesome So another, I guess, like thing you advocate for and do and like on, for example, TikTok, which I see a lot of your videos is body positivity and intuitive eating, which is also close to my heart, A, because, you know, it's so intertwined with mental health and B, having battled an eating disorder still like I think everyone who has had um and a, re- a difficult relationship with food still is kind of in recovery. Like, I don't know if that ever, you know, fully is finished, but, um, right. I, and I don't, and I think that's a good point, Zoe. I don't think it ever is. I think you're always going to have a thought come up. You're going to have a trigger happen. That's just life, mm-hmm. but you get stronger along the way. Exactly. And it's just a matter of like having, like keep continuing to build it, build, um, is coping mechanisms the right word or just like ways to respond and yeah but I was wondering if when you had this talk sophomore year if at that time were you also simultaneously having um disordered eating or going through an eating disorder and if so did you like <laughs> have you had you addressed it yeah so this is also a funny fun funny fun fact looking back on things I definitely was struggling with binge eating during that sophomore spring or that sophomore spring is when I get the TED talk, but during that sophomore year, especially and freshman year was when it was like really at its worst, but I was not comfortable talking about it. So it was weird because on the one hand I was on the stage talking about anxiety, depression, and then opening up about suicidal thoughts. And then here I was also thinking oh but the binge eating is the thing I can't share which is funny because some people would think there's worse things you there's scarier things you confessed on that stage than your eating issues but I just wasn't ready to share I I, I still had a lot of shame tied to the body image stuff I still really cared about my appearance and how I looked and I didn't want people to think I struggled with image so that came gradually my advocacy for that conversation and now it's like fully I'm a thousand percent comfortable with it I've I have shared things that, I mean, it's funny. I This is another thing. I like think about some of my issues with food and 
some of you think of a something you did and you're like that is dark and like you could cry thinking about it and then those are the things that I've shared yeah so I've really come a long way with you know the body image uh issues and the disordered eating that I talk about online but it took me a while and it actually was an accident how it kind of happened I was starting to talk about it and I did this interview for um a media publication and they were like big time and I was excited to be featured and I, you know, I, I was new to this kind of publicity, so I didn't really know what I was doing. I just showed up and I got interviewed and I left and then they published the piece and the way they framed it was uncomfortable for me. I wasn't ready for that mm-hmm. and I was actually embarrassed. And then, so when the thing came out, I didn't share it. I didn't publish it on my stuff because I was I didn't want people to hear it, Um, but random people online, of course, found it. This was a big publication, so even if I didn't share it, other people saw it, and then those people messaged me and said how much they related, and then that kind of gave me the confidence to embrace that side of my story because it was almost like the reassurance that I wasn't alone in it came, and and then that gave me the confidence to to talk more about it, and I guess I – While I knew many athletes were struggling with anxiety and depression, I think the binge eating to me was something I truly thought was so animalistic, so gluttonous, so disgusting that people wouldn't relate. Um, And so, you know, it's it's weird. It's interesting how that part of my story came to the, the forefront, but I'm glad that it did. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because... I feel like I can relate so much to that. I was going around being this quote unquote like mental health advocate, talking about my anxiety, talking about my depression, being very open about that and like continuing to be open about it with the podcast growing. And then it took so long to finally have like the confidence to record with a friend who's always been very open about her, um, her struggle with an eating disorder and like it was basically like my my coming out on uh, like about this having not talked about my issues with eating with anyone outside my immediate family before that and then it's just something about I don't know if you find it with your podcast but like there's something just like so therapeutic about speaking words into existence and just being like be free like now everything like Mm -hmm. Like, now I don't have to justify myself to anyone because it's already out there. If you want to listen, cool. If you don't, I don't care. Like, I don't know. It's just weird how we have so much shame for that one, like, thing specifically. And it's probably rooted in, like, you know, being woman and coming, like, with just a lot of other, like, things in the media and other just ways that were raised that, that subconsciously kind of ingrain this shame in us. But it, it is interesting how that ironically, even though it's like, at least for you and at least for me, like the most difficult thing to share, or at least it was, has been, I was actually explaining th- to this yesterday when I was um, recording on a friend's podcast that like, my episodes where I address my eating disorder or where I interview someone who has like, those are the ones I get the most DMS about being like, thank you. Or like I related to that. So it just shows how common it is and like crazy. Definitely. And I'm, I'm, that's super awesome that you've started to own your story. It's not easy to do either. And I think that's another thing that, um, 
is part of the reward of sharing your story is it's empowering and it makes you feel like you know you are worthy of whatever the world has for you because when we keep things a secret I personally believe it's because we don't think that part of us is worthy of love or is a part that someone else could accept and so we keep it to ourselves because it's the deep dark scary thing and I think when you put that out into the world and and everyone's different not everyone has to have a podcast like us and talk about these things but even just to accept it within yourself is huge a hundred percent it's like the first step towards being that advocate for others I think and like I don't know I, I know this there's this one um video or TikTok that you shared that like really resonated with me. And it was one of those things I saw and I was like, I hope no one ever has to see these words again. Cause it was it's the one where you say like, let, I, I don't even know, but co- like words in college or that are or phrases in college that are so frequently used that you, mm-hmm. they just become normalized. And like only afterwards when you are, you know, I'm in New York city. Like if I ever hear the word pull trig again, like I'm going to like punch a wall just like how is right. it like how crazy is it that that becomes something that's like part of party culture? Mm-hmm. It just wild to me. I, I agree a thousand percent, and it's just so normalized as like a term. And I just my I just cringe up if I hear that word used. Yeah, it's it's nuts, and I just hope like, and I and I'm. I'm pretty confident that like what you are doing and what other advocates are doing will create a world that in which no one, like hopefully fewer and fewer young women, fewer and fewer young men, like especially will have that experience of shame of being super body conscious. Like I really truly believe that, in the future we'll have like a world where everyone's just like more accepting towards themselves, more accepting towards others. Maybe I'm just being completely like naive, but I don't know. I think the generation that's coming is like pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I hope we get there too. Hi guys. Me again, really quick. Wanted to talk about better help because I love therapy and just everyone should know how amazing it is. So again, BetterHelp is large online counseling service. They offer um, in like weekly, bi-weekly sessions uh, that you can have with a licensed professional counselor over uh, like telehealth, but that's, you know, everything's telehealth right now because we have, are in a fucking pandemic. So it's just makes so much sense and it's just such a more affordable option than regular therapy, even though I love that. But unfortunately, that's just how our mental health care system is. So try BetterHelp. Uh, get 10% off your first order by going to try, sorry, your first month by going to trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe. I promise you, you will not regret it. Seriously, therapy fucks. I love it. So trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe, Z-O-E, for your 10% off your first month. So I always wrap up with a couple of questions from a New York Times article that um, I just think are fun and deep, but 
that's kind of the podcast. So, <laughs> so the first question is, what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Definitely my battle with depression, I'd say, has made me the strongest that I am. Yeah, I, I can agree. And looking back, it's I forget one someone I interviewed once said like because when I asked her that question, she gave it this like story. And she says whenever she's having a bad day, she looks back and thinks about that moment and then reflects on how far she's come. And it automatically flips the narrative and is like, wow. Like I am so strong that I made it through that. I just like, yeah, I love that. Second question. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? No. Why? I don't believe everything happens for a reason because if I believed everything happened for a reason, that would mean that I believed as a result, everything in life is preplanned. Mm-hmm. Whether that's preplanned by a God you believe in or what, if you're saying everything happens for a reason, you're saying everything is preplanned. I personally don't believe life is preplanned. So I take the approach of, do I believe I get something out of everything? Yes. Mm-hmm. Heartbreak, missed opportunities, failure. I get something from that. I learn I'm stronger. It helps me in life. So you get something from everything in life, but I don't think everything in life happens for a reason. And I think, you know, it takes a sense of comfort to not need to believe everything happens for a reason. Am I the first person that said no on your show? No. I feel like I'm so negative. No, I, I always <laughs> just say like, why? Because I uh, personally a hundred percent agree with you. I think there's a reason that can be pulled from everything that happens or like a silver lining that can be found or a lesson that can be learned. But I, I think just it's all about because if everything happened for a reason, you could get into like a whole, you know, conversation about like inequality and racism and like there's there's a lot of things that happen for no reason but I do think Mm -hmm. it's like important to find the silver lining in everything that happens like even the bad things which I feel like is kind of what you're saying yeah I agree next question is do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by I do love quotes and I'm such a quote person I don't I go in phases. I think a quote that was recently said to me by Dr. Michael Gervais, a high performance psychologist on my podcast was there are no big moments in life, just this moment. And I think it's a beautiful way of helping people who have expectations like me and who look to the future like me can remember that there is no big moment in life. There's just the moment you have right now. I love that. Yeah, I feel like I need that to be like stay in the present kind of. Mm -hmm. When's your birthday, by the way? Are you going to look for my astrology sign? Yeah, even though I don't follow it enough or like I don't know much about it, I follow it a lot. I, I, yeah, I don't either. I'm April 30th, so I'm a Taurus. Oh, okay. I love Tauruses. I'm a Virgo, so I'm very. I don't know anything about the signs, so I can't tell. All I know is Tauruses I mean, at least I just based it off of like what my Taurus friends are like. And all my Taurus friends are just like very kind, humble, like down to earth people. 
So I don't know if that's true at all, but that's well, just thank the, you. I'm very flattered. Just like <laughs> the overarching theme I'm seeing with my Taurus okay. friends. And then I know Virgos are very like type A and that I am. So oh my gosh. love that. My dog is literally doing backflips. Um, <laughs> next question is what do you love most about yourself? I love most about myself and also I want to quick pause important learning lesson for listeners I'm sure the average person's like oh my god like what can you say about yourself not me but I think getting asked this question people don't want to say something they love about themselves Mm -hmm. because like socially that's not okay and isn't that weird like why does society not want us to just answer a question and say I love this about myself so I think you know the message is like if someone gives you a compliment today, just say thank you. Don't say, oh, no, I'm not, it's but thank you. so true. Every single time <laughs> I ask this question, people are like, oh, God. Like, oh, right? no. Oh, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, no. I'm ready to I'm ready to lean in. And I think listeners, that's just maybe a little thing to think about. But I love how I am not afraid to say how I really feel, whether it's relationships, confrontation, the platform I've built, um, there's literally nothing I won't say or confess to someone. I'm probably honest to a fault or vulnerable to a fault, but I like it about myself. I love it about myself. Love that. Yeah. And that's another thing is people will be like, well, I like, I'm like, no, you love, <laughs> you don't like, you, <laughs> you love it. Love it. Have you read? I just was thinking about this because it's, I think it was vulnerability or sensitivity, but have you read Untamed by Glennon Doyle? Glennon Doyle? No, but I've heard I should. You should read it. It's, I think like my top two favorite books of all time. It's amazing. Um, and she just talks a lot about like vulnerability and sensibility to how to her superpower. That's her sensitivity. Um, last question, which is the name of the podcast is how do you find solace in the city? And city can be either a physical place or something more intangible. I find solace by stopping whatever I'm doing, taking a huge deep breath and just letting go and just chilling with the moment right now. And I think not trying to make that a meditative thing like oh I find solace by being present because I'm not always present but I find solace by being like screw this I'm canceling this plan I'm turning off my phone I'm gonna go sit outside drink a white claw and talk to my boyfriend like that's how I find solace is just I'm canceling life and I'm gonna take the next 10 minutes to do whatever I want right now I think that that's always a helpful skill for me when I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed is let me just take a 10 minute break and go outside um and just chill for a, for a moment no it's so important I I feel like I see this quote a lot but I also saw it today where it was said something like self-care is saying no or it was along those lines and it's so true because like especially people who have like people pleasing tendencies like me you know you feel that pressure to say yes to everything to go to every event go to every party but like ultimately it's just going to do you a disservice because you're not going to enjoy it you're going to be stressed the entire time. I mean, that's a generalization, but like if you're deep down, just want to stay in, do what's best for you. Because you're a people pleaser and I am too. Can I read you a quote that I saw that was really powerful? Yeah, definitely. Okay. It said, 
and this is one of my favorite accounts to follow. It's called The Holistic Psychologist. I saved this the other day because I'm a people pleaser. It says, people pleasing, AKA, attempting to control how people view you. And I thought that was, that just hit me. I was like, it's so true. Like you're trying to, and not you, I'm speaking to me too. I hope you don't think I'm trying to attack you here. But it's like people pleasing, saying yes, or trying to be the person who's always there is, you know, trying to control the narrative someone has for you. And like, I think it's cool to think about how it stems to, what people think of us and wanting to always be pleasing. And so that was just cool for me to read. That's why I want to share it with you. Wait, that's so funny because I, now I'm like thinking of this other quote that stuck with me as a people pleaser. And like, it was one of those things where I was like, whoa, that just like hit deep. <laughs> I need to find it. Okay. It was a tweet and it says, my friend just said to me, Sometimes you have to make peace with the fact that you are the villain in someone else's story, even if you thought you were doing the right thing. You don't get to tell them how to narrate their experiences. A word. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's like essentially kind of the same message. Exactly. Like So it, true. You can't control, what is it? You can't control how other people, like what other people think, only how you react or something like that. Mm-hmm. So these are just some of the plethora of quotes that I've saved or have to look for. But (laughs) anyways, that that was a tangent, but Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, like, and just being vulnerable and sharing your experience. Cause even though I know, like, I know you share obviously all of this a lot, but that also can be, I imagine just very like a lot on you and so I'm really really grateful for you to you know open up on my podcast and with my listeners and I know it'll mean a lot to everyone who listens um but where can they follow you and just see the inspiring person you are and yeah plug everything thank you I appreciate it well my podcast is called real pod and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts it's on dear media network and my instagram is victoria garrick and that should take you everywhere if you head to the instagram you'll find the website the tiktok all the fun stuff amazing so thank you again and bye everyone